All right, I'm going to move this. If you couldn't tell, I ran out of batteries earlier, so we had to do a pit stop there. Uh, we got it fixed, though. All right, if you have a copy of the Scriptures, please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. This is our last week uh, in the book of Ephesians. We've been looking at this all fall. Uh, next week, we're going to start our Advent series, which is the book of Ruth. Uh, and we're actually going to finish Ruth on Christmas morning. Um, so if you want to get the whole thing, you're going to have to come to church on Christmas morning. But uh, Ruth is a great book for Advent, uh, but we're not there yet. Uh, so Ephesians 6, we're looking at verses 10 to 14. Uh, this is God's word for us, his people, this morning. Listen to this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm." Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak, so that you also may know how I Am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith, from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. This is God's word for us this morning. Let's pray and ask for his help to understand it. Father, we thank you that you haven't left us alone, but you've given us your word. Lord, we pray now uh, that you would give us understanding, that you would give us your Holy Spirit. Uh, Lord, that you would speak words of correction and of truth and of comfort to us. Show us Christ we pray in his name, amen. Last week I preached for 49 minutes, which is the longest sermon I have ever preached. Uh, so congratulations. Uh, it is a homiletical truth, though, that the mind can only absorb what the seat can endure. Uh, so 
Uh, that is not a regular habit of mine. Uh, this will be a shorter sermon this week. Just wanted to acknowledge and move forward together. <laughs> Paul's concluding his thoughts here to the Ephesian church, to this group of Christians that he loves. And he has been talking to them about what it means for the gospel to shape their life together. And so as he concludes, what Paul is going to do is try to calibrate their expectations for life in this world. That is what Paul is doing in this final section here. He is calibrating their expectations. And what Paul says in verses 11, 12, 13, and 15 is that the Ephesian Christians can expect opposition. They can expect attack. They can expect hardship. Paul is saying, expect these things. Expect opposition. Expect attack. Expect hardship. And friends, it's just helpful to remember again and again that Christianity is not ultimately about our comfort. And it's not about our ability to control the outcomes in our lives. And I say this because I think often we have this unstated expectation that if I am doing what I ought to do, if I am walking in the middle of God's will, then things should go well for me. Things should be easy. Things should happen the way I want them to. Things should happen the way I expect them to. I remember having a friend one time tell me that there is no place that is safer than the middle of God's will. Now, there is a sense in which that is an absolutely true statement, uh, but there is not a sense, there is also a sense in which that is an absolutely false statement. Uh, It's true in the sense that what is best for me is doing what the Lord would have me to do. It is false in the sense that that means I'm going to be protected from difficulty and hardship in the world. And because we often have this unstated expectation that doing the right thing means that things go well or are easy, when difficult things happen to us, when hardship comes, when opposition arises, sometimes we begin to wonder what we've done wrong. Or if we've made a wrong choice somewhere down the road. Or if there's just a lesson that we need to learn and as soon as we learn this lesson, then the difficult thing will end. This is why last week I made the point again and again, sometimes we think, well, I married the wrong person because my marriage is hard. No, your marriage is hard because you're both sinners. It's not a wrong choice. You should expect opposition. You should expect attack. You should expect hardship. It's where we start. Expect these things. But Paul also helps us because Paul puts opposition and hardship and attack in a bigger context. He helps us to interpret the circumstances of our lives. He puts them in the broader story of what is happening in the world. And in doing that, what he does is reframe our experience. Paul doesn't just say to expect these things. He tells us what is actually happening. And in doing that, he reframes our experiences as 
a spiritual struggle. The difficulty we encounter in this life is a spiritual struggle. You see it in verse 11. He says that uh, we will be uh, standing against the schemes of the devil. In verse 12, he says, we are not wrestling with flesh and blood, which means our primary uh, adversaries in this life aren't other people, but we are wrestling against Satan and those forces who oppose God and his purposes and his people in the world. And so I want to pause for a moment here and think about what does it look like to be opposed by Satan in the world? Like, what does that look like? How do we identify when that is happening in our lives? I think that the attacks of Satan can look a multiplicity of ways. It's not just one thing. One way it can look is the way we probably most often think it should look, which is direct attack. To be opposed by Satan is to be directly attacked by him, which would look like political persecution. Uh, it would look like government forces outlawing the, the spread of the gospel or outlawing the church gathering to worship and saying that was a crime. That kind of persecution we see talked about explicitly in the book of Revelation. Uh, and that is clearly shown to be part of the way that Satan is waging war against the church is by having forces of government and empire uh, politically persecute his people. But even that is not the only way direct attack might look. When our culture begins to portray and talk about the gospel as if it is silly or trite, or just a fairy tale that weak-minded people use to cope with reality. When, when our culture presents the gospel in those ways, those are the same kinds of attacks from the evil one. Anytime we are tempted to minimize our understanding of the gospel, anytime we are tempted to turn away from the gospel to gain respectability or position or influence, we are experiencing the attacks of the evil one. Let me add a note here. That note is pointing out the sins of Christians or of churches or of ministries is not the attack of Satan. Uh, if your church uh, or your ministry or, or some notable Christian leader has committed heinous acts, it is not up to us, it is not up to the church to protect a person from accountability. It is not the attack of Satan for what is shameful and wrong to be brought into the light. And I say that because oftentimes when Christian leaders or notable ministries are shown to have been engaged in really wrong, often illegal behavior, people begin to act like the culture pointing that out and bringing and holding those people to account is somehow an attack of Satan. It is not. The attacks of Satan are persecution or a temptation, cultural pressure that makes us want to turn away from Christ. But the attack of Satan can look even different. It's not just a direct attack 
uh, Satan's uh, opposition might look like desensitizing us to things that matter. And by that I mean we become occupied with pointless things. I had a friend who was a pastor on a college campus, and he used to say that Netflix was the most abused drug on campus. Kids would watch TV for hours and hours and hours on end. Satan doesn't need to persecute the church if we're not doing anything that matters. If we're staring at a blinking rectangle, there's really not a need for active opposition. The attack of Satan sometimes looks like having us be obsessed with things that don't matter, being numbed to things that are of ultimate importance. If we spend our lives just ignoring and tuning out and numbing ourselves to the world, friends, we can very much consider that the opposition of the evil one. I'm not saying that Netflix is from Satan, by the way. Uh, there is responsible usage of such things. Uh, but if we are numb to what matters, we are already under the opposition of the evil one. The opposition of Satan might also look like distraction. Distraction. And I think one of the chief ways that the church in America can be distracted is by being too worried and concerned about power and influence and politics. It is really easy for us to get pulled into that web. And I, I'm not saying that politics don't matter. Uh, it does. It, it, it matters how we pursue the common good together. But if we begin to treat politics and electoral victories as evidence of how the kingdom is doing in this country, we are missing something important. C.S. Lewis, I think, uh, captures this beautifully. He wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters, uh, which if you're not familiar with it, um, you should buy it and read it this afternoon. Uh, I should, I'll put it on the book table at some point. Uh, but The Screwtape Letters uh, are letters that are written from uh, an elder demon to his nephew uh, who is just learning uh, how to be a proper demon, uh, and how to keep his person, his subject, his individual from following Jesus. Um, so this is advice from an older demon to a younger demon on how to keep someone away from the truth of the gospel. And in one of the letters, uh, the older demon says this to his nephew. He says, let him begin by treating the patriotism or the pacifism as part of his religion. Then let him, under the influence of partisan spirit, come to regard it as the most important part. Then quietly and gradually nurse him on this, onto the stage at which the religion becomes merely part of the cause, in which Christianity is valued chiefly because of the excellent arguments it can produce in favor of the British war effort or of pacifism. Once you have made the world an end and faith a means, you have almost won your man. And it makes very little difference what kind of worldly end he is pursuing, provided that meetings, 
pamphlets, policies, movements, causes, and crusades matter more to him than prayers and sacraments and charity, he is ours. And the more religious on those terms, the more securely ours. This isn't about which side of the aisle you line up on. This is about our posture towards politics. And we must be careful that we don't give in to the opposition of the evil one by acting as if what happens in the political sphere is ultimately the most important. It is not. Every government in this world will pass away. Uh, For eternity, we will have a king, and his name is Jesus. Politics is not the most important. We can't be distracted by the evil one. Here's a final way I think that the attacks of Satan might look in our lives, and that is that Satan accuses us. Satan accuses us, and when he does that, he overwhelms us with our sinfulness. He turns us inward on ourselves and makes us look at our sin overwhelming us and making us think that God could not love a person like me. I'm too bad. I'm too unlovable. I have no dignity and no worth. Satan accuses us against ourselves. And the point of just thinking about all of these different ways that Satan might attack us is to to help you realize that Satan is doing all that he can to distract us from the gospel of Jesus Christ and from the advance of God's kingdom in this world. That is what the opposition of Satan is fundamentally about. His methods are varied, but his desire is to distract us from the gospel of Jesus and for the advance of his kingdom in the world. It might not look like we expect it will. Uh, In fact, one uh, Presbyterian pastor, a guy named uh, Donald G. Barnhouse, who is the pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, uh, he one time uh, offered a thought experiment for what it would look like if Satan took over Philadelphia. Uh, And here's what he said. He said, if Satan took over Philadelphia, all the bars would be closed, pornography would be banished, and pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. The children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And the churches would be full every Sunday. But Christ would not be preached. It's pretty interesting, isn't it? We don't think often that that might be what the work of the devil in this world would look like. But friends, a moral people who need no Savior are a blind people. And Satan might look like making things look really great and distracting us from our need for Christ. So just consider this morning, who is the greatest threat to you? Who is the greatest threat to the church? Who do you instinctively think that is? 
Because what the Bible tells us is that that answer always must be Satan. Satan is always the greatest threat to the church. So what do we need? If we're expecting hardship and opposition and attack, and we understand that that attack is a spiritual struggle because we are being opposed by the evil one, what do we need to stand in the face of such opposition? Well, Paul tells us. In verse 10, he says, we need strength. Be strong, he says. And in verses 13 and following, he says, we need armor if we're going to oppose Satan. But we don't need ordinary strength. And we don't need ordinary armor. Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And the armor we put on is not armor we create for ourselves. It is the very armor of God. And he describes it here in verses 13 and following. He says there's a belt of truth, a breastplate of righteousness that we put on his shoes, the readiness that is produced by the gospel of peace. We bear the shield of faith and wear the helmet of salvation and we wield the sword of the Spirit. And it's at this point that I have a confession for you. I have never heard a sermon on this passage that I liked. And here's what I mean. I feel like every sermon I've ever heard on this passage turned at this point when it got to the armor into a series of techniques on what it means for me to each day put on the belt of truth. Uh, and what it means to put on the breastplate of righteousness, and what it means to wield the sword of the Spirit and put on the helmet of salvation. But friends, I don't think that's actually what this passage is doing. I don't think this passage is Paul offering us techniques for doing this. And I think that's why it's important that we return to the Old Testament context of what Paul is seeking to evoke here, which is Isaiah 59, the passage we read earlier in the service. Uh, let me just remind you of what that said. I'll look at verses 14 and following. Uh, this is an observation on the culture. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the public squares. Is that relatable? Truth has stumbled in the public square? Yes, relatable. Uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Think of what he's saying there. Those who seek to walk in obedience and righteousness are actively opposed. They, have, they are made a prey. They are pursued and attacked. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation. The Lord's arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he, that is the Lord, repay Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. 
To the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives and a redeemer will come to Zion. Friends, God is the one who puts on the armor. God is the one who dons the armor. God is the one who fights for his people. What Paul is telling us here, what he tells us to put on this armor, is he is telling us to put on the victory that God has won for his people. He is saying that we should put on the victory that God accomplished for his people. In other words, this armor is not something we muster up. It's not something that we do. And it's why elsewhere Paul puts this, what I think is slightly differently, but in the same category, because elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul says that God's people must put on Christ. Put on Christ. He says it in Romans 13, verse 14. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. In Galatians 3, 27, he says, As many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So what does it mean to put on Christ? What does it mean for us to stand against the opposition of Satan by putting on the armor of God, which I believe is Christ? I think Martin Luther can actually be a helpful guide for us here. Luther, uh, more than most theologians and pastors, uh, actively experienced the opposition and the attacks of the evil one. Here's one of the experiences Luther had, and this is his description of what happened. He says, When I awoke last night, the devil came and wanted to debate with me. He rebuked and reproached me, arguing that I was a sinner. To this I replied, I love Luther. Tell me something new, devil. I already know that perfectly well. I have committed many a solid and real sin. Indeed, there must be good, honest sins, not fabricated and invented ones for God to forgive for his beloved son's sake, who took all my sins upon him so that now the sins I have committed are no longer mine, but belong to Christ. Elsewhere, Luther said, sometimes we must drink more, uh, laugh, and even sin a little so that we leave the devil no place to trifle with our conscience. Uh, Luther was uh, interesting, we'll say. (laughs) But thinking back to Paul's words in Galatians 3.27, which I just read, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, it was striking to me that one of the things that we know from Luther's life is that when Luther felt overwhelmed by the opposition of the evil one, he would lie on the floor and he would say over and over to himself, I have been baptized, 
I am a Christian. I have been baptized. I am a Christian. Why baptism? Why was Luther drawing strength from his baptism when he was opposed by Satan? I think part of it is Paul's very words there. He is reminding himself in the midst of being opposed by Satan that in his baptism, he has so identified with Christ that he has put on Christ, as Paul said there in Galatians 3. You see, friends, baptism is a beautiful picture of the truth of the gospel, which is simply this, God is the one who acts. The gospel is outside of us. The gospel is not about how we feel. It's not about how strongly we believe. The gospel is outside of us. It is about what God has done for us in Christ. It is something God did for us when we were weak and we were helpless. When Paul says here to put on the armor of God, he is telling us, to put on Christ and to stand confident knowing that Christ has overcome Satan. He is inviting us into the victory that Christ has won on our behalf when we could do nothing. And so, friends, we come to the end of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. He's talking to us about life in the beloved community. And what he is saying here is the same thing he said at the beginning of his letter. We bring nothing. God does everything. And then he rejoices over us. We bring nothing to the table. God is the one who acts. He saves us in Christ. And then God delights and rejoices over us. The church is built on that truth. The church is the community of people that are gathered together around the simple truth that when we were sinners, Christ died for us. It's the good news. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that your gospel continues to be good news for us. Lord, we pray that you would help us to put on Christ, that you would help us to stand in the victory that Christ has fought and won on our behalf. Father, help us to stand firm against the attacks and the opposition of the evil one. Father, let us not be distracted. Let us not be desensitized. Let us not be focused more on the sins of others. Let us not be overwhelmed by our own sins, but let us stand confident that we bring nothing, that Christ does everything, and that because of his work, you rejoice over us. Father, even now, as we come to your table, we pray that you would take this ordinary bread and this ordinary cup and use them for an extraordinary purpose to help us put on Christ.
And Lord, we pray all of these things in his name. Amen.